Hey, Space fans, we've launched a brand new Twitter handle, at LMSpace, devoted fully to giving you exclusive access to the Lockheed Martin products and missions you love. Welcome to Lockheed Martin Spacemakers, the podcast that takes you out of this world for an inside look at some of our most challenging and innovative missions. My name is Ben, and I'll be your host. In Season 2, we explore Lockheed Martin's bold new vision of a future we call Space 2050. We partnered with our Advanced Technology Center to bring you an inside look at the innovations and technologies we are developing to make that future a reality. Because getting there is just the beginning. We're back with our interview with Rob Chambers. We learn how self-repairing rovers will increase our mobility on the Moon and Mars. How a communications satellite on the dark side of the Moon called Parsec will connect humans like never before and how learning from failures helps us solve the toughest challenges that come with bringing big business to space. If you haven't heard the first part of this interview, I highly encourage you to check it out. Let's jump back into our interview and get an inside look at what happens when you add humans to the mix and how they will live and work in deep space. And that was one of our big questions for this episode is what makes us unique? And you just put it in a nutshell. And so we put the lunar rover up there. We put Parsec up there. And yes. we, are, we are moving around and we are communicating. And then we put humans up there. What does that look like to you? Humans join the mix. Now, you talk about need for imagination. You talk about the dangers that face humans in space. That's a whole new level of science that we don't even know what we don't know about. How do you feel in your role when you think about that? Having humans up there actually makes the job so much easier. I was once at a conference and, and someone said, if you had a magic wand, what would you wish for? And I said, well, brains in jars. <laughs> and, and got a, a couple of looks from uh, some of the industry uh, leaders. And I said, look, here's the deal. There is nothing like the human brain. I've been doing software development for 100 years, I think. And I believe strongly in the power of computer software, AI, machine learning. But nothing equates to the human mind. And so when we put in these autonomous systems or we put in protections against the unknown unknowns and we're trying to have this imagination of what could go wrong and put the hooks in there in hardware and software, having a human there to react is transformational in terms of what they can bring to the table. So from the standpoint of the systems, it's actually, in my opinion, easier to develop a system that's going to have crew on board than one that's completely autonomous because you can trust the crew to help figure it out in real time. Is it fair to say that humans, of course, you open yourself up to human error when you add humans mm-hmm. to the mix. However, nothing, no system or process or code can accommodate human error right. like the human mind. Yes. The unknown unknowns, you know, if it's unknown to a computer, I mean, you just, you'll get whatever you get out of the software. The humans will quickly adapt, especially the kinds of humans that are going into space now who are these astounding, incredible examples of humanity that have everything from military to medical to science to psychological skills that um, allow them to respond to the unexpected. And as a software developer, the unexpected, (laughs) we don't deal well with the unexpected. I wish we did with our software. So part of the thing I'm excited about is when humans get there, we switch from how do we get there and how do we move around to what we're going to do. As engineers and at Lockheed Martin, we sometimes fall into the trap of being very excited about the things we build. 
because they're fantastic. There are things that no one else on this planet or off the planet could build. But we always, always, always think about who we're working for and the mission that we're accomplishing. And uh, when we think about the crew being there now, we get to talk about what are they going to accomplish? Why have humans there? Certainly, it's easier if humans are there to have a successful mission because of their versatility. But there's nobody else that can do science like a human in the loop. Um, being able to close that scientific method from hours or days to moments where they can experiment, they can grab something, they can run a test in situ, as we say. Do you envision a point in the next 50 years where there will be humans on the lunar surface in colonies that are lending all of this talent and ability to all of the technology that we're developing now? Do you really see that as something that can be envisioned in the next half century? Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. There are some things that have occurred fundamentally over the last 50-ish years that have, and I like to use the word transformational because I feel like we're living in a transformational time, but computing power, manufacturing, particularly local manufacturing from regolith, you know, melting regolith, creating metal, and actually fabricating is it's really straightforward. There's no no technology, no incredible breakthroughs. It's just mechanical engineering at this point. But don't you have to move it around to do that? And yes. So that's why you gotta have a mobility system. You know, we talk about our LMV and everyone just sees it with the seats. But when you put the uh, grinder on the front and the backhoe on the back, in the end it looks just like construction here on Earth. <laughs> I mean it's it's the same physics. We're going to be able to build those systems without reliance on Earth. And those technologies, whether it's fission power, fusion power, in-space manufacturing and assembly, and just sheer incredible leaps we've made from an avionics and software perspective, those were the piece parts required in order to become independent of Earth. And that's going to be within the next 50 years. And would it be something that potentially could be sparked? A tipping point might be reached, for example, by water all of a sudden the ability to manufacture water becomes much more, there's a quantum leap in that ability. Absolutely. When we move from just the widgets required, and they're really important widgets, right? Parsec from communications, LMV from a mobility perspective, and you move into, okay, how do we create a self-sustaining system? The first thing you need to do is to have power, like we talked about, and then water. And getting that water from regolith, we don't know the specifics, so we need some ground truth. And that'll be the first useful thing that we get from the LMV will be, okay, here's water and here's how hard it is to get. Yeah, because we um, don't know that yet, right? we don't know that yet. Right. We, we have a lot of theories and we've got a lot of data, but we need what we call ground truth. We need ground truth in the dark areas of the moon, the permanently shadowed craters, because that's where we think the water is just piled up as ice. But once you have that and you can crack that water... You get propellant in the form of hydrogen and oxygen. You can replenish your fuel cells. You can obviously breathe the oxygen. You can drink the water. It is truly the the oil, if you will, of exploration. I was going to say gold rush, but I'm I'm going to say moon rush. So that's the moon rush. You you have that, and you get a moon rush, right? Yep. And so more humans get to the moon. So going way out here, clearly. Not way out, though. You're saying it could happen, and it could happen oh, more yes. quickly than we think? Yeah. Our discussions with NASA, as the as a thought leader from a government perspective, they want to have the first water extraction system pilot plant by the end of this decade, by the end of the 20s. Now, that wouldn't be huge, large scale. You wouldn't be able to uh, to feed all of, of uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, <laughs> with, uh, with that first pilot station. 
But if you think about it, over the next eight years to have a water production plant on the moon, the one thing we do well as humans is scale. Once someone has done something once, then you've proven it's not impossible. You know how it always, it's always impossible until it's not. Once you have something, then we're going to figure out how to do it faster, cheaper, easier. It's kind of like the first iPhone came out, and I remember this because all of a sudden everyone had one. Yes. Right? And yes. and how did that happen? And you didn't know you needed it until you had it. Right. So you're saying we're going to we're, we should expect to see that happening up up on the moon. Absolutely. And without question. Soon. And it's water and and I'm going to th- throw it open and say, well then you have humans and you have manufacturing facilities. You're going to need hospitals. Yes. You're going to need medical treatment. We're going to need artists and we're going to need poets and we're going to need everything that makes us human. Pets. When, we need pets. It'll be interesting to see which are the first pets. You know, there's a lot of animals that have gone up into space. And to my knowledge, um, none of them have had adverse reactions. So I think the sky is kind of the limit. I'd want a bird because I just think that would be <laughs> awesome seeing them fly in zero gravity. Or try to fly. Or try to fly. Or no, they really would fly, right? They yeah. fly really super high. Yeah, yeah. Well, inside, not on the lunar In their surface. little spacesuit. Yeah, yeah, in their little <laughs> spacesuit, yeah. Right, right. Um, there could be an Ansel, you said artists, there could be an Ansel Adams that goes up there who he cataloged the photographs, the great photographs of the West. Yes. There could be someone that could become the Ansel Adams of the moon. Right. Um, so you have just really painted a picture of quite a vibrant moon life. Yes. But we haven't even chatted about Mars. Oh my gosh. You know, the, the end isn't even Mars, by the way. So sometimes people say the end game or the goal is Mars. And to me, the, the goal is you know, the edge of the known universe, which near as we can tell is going to not end in a big crunch, right? So it's ever expanding. But for me in my lifetime, I want to get us onto the surface of, of Mars. So Mars is what we call the horizon goal. The um, the systems at the moon, there's a lot of talk about, well, why, why go to the moon? Uh, we're going to get, we've done that before. We're going to get stuck there. And the answer quite simply is the moon has incredible resources that will allow us to move on to Mars in a way that's sustainable. Yeah, we could go to Mars in the next few years. From a Lockheed Martin perspective, we've got a, a vision or a concept called Mars Base Camp. And we showed you know, a few years ago that within about a decade, you could have a, a Mars orbital mission with humans safely, high value, and so forth. But what you really want to do and what we want to do from a Lockheed Martin perspective, when I think most of our colleagues do, is to develop an Earth-Moon economy that then turns into an Earth-Moon-Mars economy, including trade routes. What does Mars bring to the mix of that economy that the Moon doesn't already bring? First and foremost, atmosphere. So Mars is much easier to live in. It is much more temperate from that perspective. And it also is a great source of both oxygen and uh, methane, which can actually be a useful fuel from an energy perspective. It's got more protection from a radiation perspective. And we're pretty confident that the movie's got this part right, where we can actually grow food uh, in the Martian soil with, with additions. Might be able to do some of that in the, uh, in the moon as well, but that has to all be in confined locations, right? Mm-hmm. So the ability to spread out, be more protected from a radiation perspective, and easier to live and accommodate on Mars. The other thing Mars brings is the potential for life. The greatest question that I can think of is, are we alone in the universe? as an intelligent species, and either answer would be would be pretty earth-shattering, uh, if I may mix metaphors. So if we're alone, then we've got a lot of responsibility. If we're not alone, we've got a lot of responsibility. And so to me, the, the reason we arc towards Mars is that's an easier place to live. 
And it's got some fundamental questions that we need to answer and that we can answer with humans much easier and faster than we can with our robotic probes. You mentioned something that lurks in the background of all of this, and that is a question I think everyone considers unanswered. That is, are we alone? And as you said, either answer has profound implications. We also, though, know we're not alone on Earth. We're blazing a trail to the moon and Mars with Orion. We are figuring out how to extract minerals and make water. You're saying that the time frame for that to happen, five to ten years for some some Mm -hmm. form of manufacturing facility to be on the moon. What are the implications, the geopolitical implications for those capabilities being stood up there? What types of concerns are there for tensions to exist in terms of resources, people, different global entities aiming to be the key provider of those resources. How does that work that way into your thinking? You know, it's interesting that we've got some very positive examples that when you leave the earth, you transcend some of the politics uh, that affect us. So the International Space Station has been uh, this bastion of international collaboration, regardless of conflicts going on on the earth. If you think all the way back to uh, Apollo Soyuz, I once met the commander, the Russia or the Soviet commander of that mission, who referred to it as the Soyuz Apollo mission, oh, which uh, yeah. I thought was pretty funny because I grew up in America. And <laughs> Perspective, it was obviously the Apollo Soyuz mission. So those are things that give me hope. the The challenge will be as we get out there. There are no rules. There's the Outer Space Treaty. There are some things, but they're grossly inadequate to say. Can a an individual stake a claim to part of the moon, and who gives them that right? Can a nation stake uh, a claim? If we go and grab that water, is that Lockheed Martin's water? Is that America's water? Is that the Earthlings' water? Does it belong to the United Nations? You know, who owns that those resources? And we just haven't, as a species, had to deal with those yet. Fortunately, there are a lot of folks thinking about that. And so, for example, the Artemis Accords that NASA came out with is a fantastic idea to start documenting not just agreements, but working on behavioral norms. You know, what is acceptable? And we're going to have to organically work through that. There's an organization called the Moon Village Association who's thinking about real psychological and sociological aspects of permanent bases on the moon, which would apply to Mars as well. Mm-hmm. And what are the frameworks that, we're, that we haven't even thought of yet? So a lot of smart people, smarter than me, that are looking at these, um, in the end, it's just like any other thing we, we address here on Earth, just communicate. Well, is it fair to say that when you approach your work, you understand these are major challenges and questions. They're being addressed, but the first thing we have to do is get up there yes. and establish that economy <laughs> before any of this is addressed. You know, so many of us meet both various industries. You know, we're always competitors, right? But we sit down and talk. You know, what's what's the right way for this to evolve? What are the right interfaces? You guys want 28 volt or 120 volt or 75 volt? Those are arguments that will probably never be solved. But how do we get intercompatibility and interoperability from the get-go? And I think all of the international partners I've talked to and all the industry partners that I work with, in the end, we're all in this together and we have to figure out how to work together with the technologies and the infrastructure that can then kind of reduce that barrier of entry and allow others to come in and do their part. And along with that, there is one common concern, and that is sustainability. Yes. And that's common. 
right? Yeah. Humankind is self-protected by nature. So potentially there's conflict, but there's also common ground. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges of sustainability? And I'm talking things such as space junk. Mm-hmm. How do we go up there and do what you're talking about? How do we get hardware up there along with the software without junking up space even more? Sustainability is one of those words that the more you unpeel it like an onion, the more layers there are. So a lot of people talk about sustainability just being affordable. And then we get into sustainability is reusability, which is one way of making things affordable. But the thing about that reusability gets into the appropriate and wise, responsible use of space. And so if you're throwing systems away on every flight and you know potentially letting them crash into the moon, for example, that's you're kind of polluting the area that you're looking to expand to. And that really gets into what are the architectures, what are the types of fuel you're using. In the end, as my son would say in in Boy Scouts, are you leaving nothing but footprints? That's the mindset that more and more of us are talking about, the renewable fuels. Don't use fossil fuels. Can we use cryo, hydrogen, and oxygen, which can be found everywhere and burns cleanly? Can we look at the use of nuclear fission and ultimately fusion? with the low enriched um, uranium that we have today that will transform life here on Earth. But can we use that and avoid large arrays of solar arrays, large uh, Mm -hmm. fields of solar arrays? What are the right tools for the job that ultimately ensure that we're, um, in the end, leaving nothing but footprints? When we look at the low Earth orbit environment where there are, I've lost track. Trillions, maybe. Yeah, (laughs) way too many pieces, everything from paint flecks, all the way up to uh, CubeSats that are, you know, dying due to, for example, a, a solar flare, right? Mm-hmm. Or just dying because they're only good for a couple, three years. There hasn't been a resurgence or uh, even the first time emergence of what the behavioral norm should be for that. As producers of geostationary spacecraft, we have to think about how do we dispose of our spacecraft, get them out of the geo ring out of the orbit in a way that is safe, will not create any other harm for anybody else. And that's really what dictates when we have to retire spacecraft because we have to, we can't just let them tumble out of control in geosynchronous orbit. There are a lot of folks putting up a large number of systems in LEO that have no plan. Ultimately, they'll re-enter 10, 20, 30, 40 years, let's say. That's a long time. And in the meantime, they are 75,000 mile an hour risks to the rest of the systems that are going up. What I haven't seen yet is insurance. In the end of the day, finances often drive what we do, right? And insurance hasn't yet reached a point where it makes sense to mitigate this debris, but that the time is coming for that. A tipping Um, point is coming. A tipping point, that's right. So you mentioned you had a son Mm -hmm. and you mentioned Eagle Scouts and you do your work and your son grows up and maybe he has a son and he's an Eagle Scout. What does life on the lunar surface look like around that time? I wish that I could jump forward in time to see it because it's going to be awesome. It's just going to be awesome. So we talk a lot about the lunar economy and and that's one of my pet peeves. And unless there's a rich alien on the far side, (laughs) it's not a lunar economy, it's an Earth-Moon economy. So I fully expect to see true trade routes with some goods and services going back and forth from Earth to the Moon but we'll have figured out what at the moon Earthlings will pay for. And if you talk to Jack Schmidt, he says, look, it's going to be helium-3 for fusion. And he's probably right. Water that we bring back and use for transportation in Earth orbit is another one that uh, George Sowers at Colorado School of Mines talks a lot about. I don't know, but whatever it is, Earthlings will pay for it. Heck, it could be uh, 
artwork that's done on mm-hmm. the moon in one six gravity. Who knows? But whatever it is, that will be something Earthlings cannot live without. It'll be the next iPhone. Like you had no idea you needed it until we have it. At the same time, we'll be sending not just people and pets from Earth to the moon, but we'll also be sending some of the the last things that you can't do uh, on the moon. So we'll be able to build structures, mechanisms, fuel, water, grow plants. It'll probably be... I don't know, 50 years. I don't know that we'll have figured out how to make uh, real high-performance circuit cards and, and chips at that point. We'll make circuit cards, but I think we'll still be getting chips, computer chips from Earth, along with, you know, steak and some other things versus the 3D-printed steak we'll have on the moon. But with the exception of those trade routes, it will be a self-sustaining system that itself will be tied out to Mars. I think as the moon grows, so will Mars. The resources we need at the moon which is easy to get in and out of compared to Earth, that will propel our Martian economy as well. So it's really going to be an Earth-Moon-Mars economy. Shuttles um, between shuttles, shuttles between, between the them. moon and Mars, po- yeah, possibly? Cyclers, yes. Yes. And maybe even some near-Earth asteroids. That's the one I haven't quite figured out yet. What's that? Well, so there's an asteroid belt on the far side of Mars, but there's a lot of what we call near-Earth asteroids, which mm-hmm. are still asteroids just like the others, but they're in sort of temporary funny orbits kind of wandering around Earth and Mars because they were captured, interestingly. Those are huge deposits of precious metals, whether it's titanium, rare Earth metals, things that have real value here on Earth. That gets into an interesting question of, is it worth you know, going and harvesting it? And so I'm confident that I know what I think. No, I'm going to say it this way. I'm confident I know what the moon is going to look like. And I'm pretty confident I know what the Mars is going to look like 50 years from now. I don't know whether we'll be getting stuff off of asteroids in 50 years. That's the open piece in my mind yet. But they could be game changers if we could... Fundamental. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of those cyclers going back and forth could be hollowed out asteroids. That's probably not (laughs) within 50 years. But, you know, it's the logical progression. So, Rob, we spoke about space sustainability. And one of the things I think is very has a high profile as a challenge for humankind is space junk. Yes. We hear a lot of things about how do we approach this problem. I think there's a conference every year that addresses it specifically. Mm-hmm. Everything from space nets to aerogels that just sweep through and sweep it all up and take care of it. Yes, the space Roombas. You know, it's interesting. We're moving from discussions of, is it going to be a problem? We've moved, I think we have moved forward and said yes, and it's getting worse as time goes on. And there's also, as the as our listeners are, I'm sure, no doubt aware, every time two pieces of space junk collide, you get many, many more pieces of space junk. And each one of these has a potential of being very high energy because they're all coming from different directions and different orbits. And so the fact that we might have, I don't know, 17,000 now could easily be 42,000 even if you didn't uh, put up anything new. So we've moved into the realm of, yes, this is something we got to struggle with. There's been a lot of focus in the last several years, monitoring, tracking. You know, we're all familiar with what NORAD's role there is. Space Station has had to maneuver. Space Shuttle had to maneuver a lot. Pretty much once a week, you'll see somebody that had to maneuver. But that's just going to get harder and harder. It's like playing Frogger or something. At some point, you're going to have to reduce the number of cars trying to run over you. And so there's some interesting ideas from nets that have been proven for large systems to gels that can be put onto spacecraft that can least absorb. We actually have, on every spacecraft we build, particularly the crewed spacecraft, something called MMOD, micrometeorite and orbital debris. 
and that is just the technology there is to break those little pieces up in multiple layers before it finally gets into the, the area you want to protect. But uh, some of those are just, I don't know, workarounds. Mm-hmm. What we need to figure out is how to remove these systems in a way that doesn't create more pieces and at the same time is statistically large enough in terms of the number of things you, you get rid of. You never get rid of everything. There's no question. But it is a statistics game. Such so, as, you know, 40, 50 percent would make an exponential difference. Is correct, that correct? Exactly. And the trick is everyone's in different orbits. And it's really expensive to go from one orbital plane to the next. So how do you do it in a way it's not just like put the Roomba on your carpet and let it go? You know, you need thousands of Roombas in thousands of different houses. I don't know. The analogy <laughs> kind of fails me here. And so what we need is really clever ideas that are economical at scale that someone can come up with. So whether it's electromagnetics or lasers or gels or good old-fashioned nets, there's a market there. And at some point, insurance will become expensive enough to be a tipping point that there's a big, big business case there. Has there been anything you've heard? You just mentioned gels and nets and any one of those struck you as the most plausible? I view myself as a fairly clever person. I don't have a good answer. It's got to be from somebody solving a problem completely unrelated to space and will suddenly realize that's it. We could put that on the front of every spacecraft. We could uh, hurl those out on every launch and very quickly you know, mitigate this problem. So we need, we need ideas out there. Looking for ideas everywhere. Looking for ideas. That's good to know. Yes. We'll put that out there and see what comes back. Yes. So with all these things, you have your hand in a a lot of different programs and you are moving things forward on lots of different levels. What keeps you up at night? What's the biggest problem, the biggest challenge? Is there anything that you view as insurmountable or dangerous that we cannot as humanity overcome with the science we're working here at Lockheed Martin and all over the globe to get to space, not just get there, but make a new space economy? You know, from a technological perspective, I sleep really well. (laughs) Work for the best aerospace company on the planet or off the planet. The team I work with can solve any problem. Some days I'm just kind of blown away by what they're able to do. The thing that keeps me up at night is because I personally want to see humans get to Mars orbit and then onto onto the surface of Mars. That's not the end game, but it's certainly a very measurable waypoint, if you will. And what I worry is just having the intestinal fortitude as a human species, to do it and to do it together. Every time we turn around, you know, the problem is there are tens of thousands of ways to do anything. As engineers, we like to think through every single one of them. As a species, as a country, and then as a species, we are always looking at maybe there's a different architectural approach. And every time we stop as a species and we think through, maybe we should do it differently. Maybe we should use fuel depots instead of a large rocket. Maybe we should switch from hydrogen to methane or some other fuel source. It causes us to pause. And each of those pauses can be a decade in length. You know, there's what You're talking about time, a non-renewable resource. Exactly. Money can buy everything except time. And so the sense of urgency, the sense of, okay, this is good enough. And I don't mean from a safety perspective. I mean from, okay, it's not as efficient, but that's fine. But making progress is I just worry that we'll just keep analyzing ourselves and and never get off the planet. I'm going to throw out two analogies. One is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yes. And the other one I heard from leaders at Space last week about you can aim, 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 and fire, or you can aim, fire, aim, fire. And when you aim and fire, aim and fire, you may make more mistakes, but you get more data back. Yeah, you do. And then you make better decisions. That's right. 
I, I can't agree more. The, the culture of failing fast and failing forward is one that is, it's, it can be scary because uh, it's different and you have to make sure you don't lose what you know. Failing forward doesn't mean being reckless. It means understanding and bounding your risks and then being willing to take risks. And again, not with human life, but rather with, yeah, potentially you're not going to get as much science from that instrument. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll tell you that from a Lockheed Martin perspective, we have never missed a launch window for our interplanetary spacecraft. That is a great motivator that the planets literally have to be aligned or else you miss your launch window. And we've got an incredible track record for success. You just need that intestinal fortitude, that thing that's driving you forward. You better fire then because if you're still aiming, <laughs> you know, the uh, whatever it is you're shooting, you know, Time's up, and, and you've missed it. Another so. millennia could go by, yes. and we still wouldn't be on Mars. Right. So that my final question to you is, asked you what keeps you up at night, what gets you excited about the future of space? What gets me up in the morning, huh? The incredible opportunities we have today, you couldn't even have predicted them back in the 60s. So, you know, people in the 60s were... Or now, say, you know, George Jetson and all those visions, and you know, some of those were, were interesting. But the truth is, the capabilities we have today could not even be imagined in the 60s. And I say that to say, there is therefore nothing we can't do. We could have a, I mean, we could be in Mars orbit in 10 years if we chose to do that. So to me, the excitement is just the potential and the fact we're making use of that potential. It's a great time to be an engineer, great time to be a scientist or a doctor or a psychologist or an artist because we're about to go make history. It is exciting. And, and we thank you so much for coming here and sharing your vision with us. My and pleasure. Love to have you back soon. And um, Awesome. I'll call from, uh, I'll I'll call from, from Mars. the moon <laughs> yeah, via Parsec. We'll there, I can't wait for Parsec. We're all excited about that too. Yes. Just want to say thank you for coming today. I've been sitting here talking with Rob Chambers of Lockheed Martin Space about our interplanetary space programs and the future that we're seeing through the vision of our engineers and scientists at Lockheed Martin. Thank you. You've just heard how humans will soon live and work in space, but the future is still decidedly Earth-based. How will the future of space help us address climate change, food scarcity, and revolutionize how we manage our health? In our next episode, we'll examine how space is already helping provide solutions to some of humanity's most vexing Earth-based problems and ask, what does space on Main Street look like? You've been listening to Rob Chambers at Lockheed Martin, and Rob is a spacemaker. Whether you're a software engineer, systems engineer, finance, or HR professional, we need spacemakers like you to make the seemingly impossible missions a reality. Please visit this episode's show notes to learn more about what you just heard in this episode or the careers available at Lockheed Martin. If you enjoyed this show, please like and subscribe so others can find us and follow along for more out-of-this-world stories. To learn more about our missions, products, and people, follow our new Twitter handle at LMSpace and visit LockheedMartin.com backslash space. Join us on the next episode as we introduce you to more space makers. Space Makers is a production of Lockheed Martin Space. It's executive produced by Pavan Desai. Senior producer is Natalia Oleksik. Senior producer, writer, and host is Ben Dinsmore. Sound design and audio mastered by Julian Giraldo. Graphic design by Tim Rush. 
Marketing and recruiting by Joe Portnoy, Shannon Myers, Mallory Richardson, and Stephanie Dixon. A huge thanks to all the communication professionals at Lockheed Martin who helped make these stories possible. Thanks for joining us and see you next time. Need even more space? Subscribe to Lockheed Martin's monthly Space Scoop newsletter to get all the latest space news, fun facts, and behind-the-scenes mission updates right to your inbox. Sign up using the link in show notes, and remember to follow Lockheed Martin on social media. Hey, space fans. There's a new way to interact directly with Lockheed Martin Space and go even further behind the scenes of the technologies, missions, and people driving the future of space. We've launched a brand new Twitter handle, at LM Space, devoted fully to giving you exclusive access to the Lockheed Martin products and missions you love. Head on over to Twitter, give us a follow, and let us know what your favorite Spacemakers episode is. We'll see you in the Twittersphere.